Hello! Welcome to Why Not Both, the podcast all about how our multiple passions and interests shape our identity and our lives. My name is Pam Schaefer, and I am a musician and therapist in Los Angeles, and I also happen to be your host. This podcast is produced by Laura Studeris, and for this season, we've partnered up with Under the Radar magazine. If you like what you hear, you can hang out with us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at WNB, the podcast. And if you really, really like what you hear, please support us on Patreon. We are under Why Not Both podcast. When you join our Patreon, you get a whole bunch of really cool behind the scenes stuff and you get to chat with us. And that's pretty awesome. Thank you so much for your support and I hope you enjoy our interviews. Today, we welcome Julianne Baker, the wonderful, charming, and brilliant musician to the podcast. I hope that you enjoy our interview. I just realized we have the same microphone. SNB <laughs> Club. Ah, uh, yes. Very Ooh, practical. It is very practical. However, I use it for like, I, I record a lot of my vocals on this microphone doing all these interviews and it's like very difficult because it's a very low gay microphone um yes yeah yeah it still is technically a dynamic mic i believe but um yeah anyway nobody needs to hear about that <laughs> nobody needs to hear me talk about like oh, i should have bought a higher gain microphone <laughs> like welcome to why not both where we need higher gain microphones <laughs> <laughs> oh, why not both? i know i'm a, well and it's also like this is kind of like a workhorse microphone i was looking at like am i really gonna spend like fifteen hundred dollars on a u87 as the first mic i buy nah come on um, <laughs> anyway i promise we won't talk about gear this whole time i'm gonna stop I'm gonna let that's you know. hilarious i'm like looking over at my interface and i'm like you know the cloud lifter is really good with the 7b because <laughs> like... what? i've never even heard of that so like i'm thinking about leveling up from the scarlet 2i Mm -hmm. to thinking about getting like an apollo 2 or like an apollo 4 because i also get yep. like really great pre emulators on there yep i don't know i don't know what to do i don't know what to do <laughs> that's so funny i'm like well i highly recommend i was like i'm not sponsored by them uh but i recommend the uh, i have the apollo twin and i love it like that's what everyone to a person says oh yeah like yeah. i just Sometimes I'm just being a big baby and want to record in my bedroom. And so I just bring it in there with my laptop. Dude, you're fine. <laughs> you're not a big baby. I record. I Well, I, I have never. Actually, I have. I lived by myself in an apartment for like a year. But other than that, I've always like rented rooms. So my workspace is always the same as my sleeping space, uh -huh. um, which I know is like unhealthy, but it's like. Especially when I was on tour, I was like, am I really going to pay Nashville rent prices if I'm going to be home like three months out of the year? Like, <laughs> I just felt like throw the SpongeBob episode where Mr. Krabs is like throwing money into an open fire, like a big furnace, <laughs> just like, who needs this? I might as well. I'm not even getting equity in this house. I'm just going to... Um. Wow, we've covered we've covered microphone preferences. We've covered real estate opinions. We're off to a great start. This is a millennial podcast. <laughs> Damn right it is. You're like, we're here for it. We're here for it. Are there any more tropes we need to cover? Do we want to go over the side part versus middle part debate? <laughs> I've been rocking. I have been rocking the butt part. 
since I was in college. I'm happy that I feel like it's finally more acceptable like in the last couple of years i'm also super happy about i just got a pair of like carpenter jeans in the mail because it was like excellent it's come up on the like three-year period where i really can't avoid buying new jeans anymore because they're full of holes and they look bad and they're cold but um, (laughs) i'm like wow i'm so glad that uh dressing like a 12 year old boy is back in style these look like i need to be like you can't see them obviously but it looks like i need to be wearing like a tony hawk <laughs> and like one of those little beanies with like a tiny bill yeah i'm just like everything is a everything is a cycle right it just comes yes. back <laughs> i'm so excited about like that trend because i usually i don't wear jeans um ever because they never fit me right like it's either like they're too if they fit my hips they're too big in the waist if they fit my waist there's there's no way they're going over my hips like just yeah it's not a thing and so i used to steal Bro. my best friend's pants and my best friend's a boy <laughs> and i would always like in high school i would just wear his pants and i was like great it's like sweatpants but they're made of denim and now i'm like oh <gasps> Can I do that again? Is that bad? <laughs> that is, in fact, the style now. Yeah, I had, like, a freaking, not a breakdown that I'm exaggerating for humor's sake, but, like, I woke up to the fact, I forget where I was, but I was like, man, skinny jeans are not the thing anymore. Like, you can still, I don't think anybody cares. Like, I think at this point there has been such a fragmenting of taste that like and it's like that in music too right like so there's so many less definable trends because a we're moving through them at this accelerated rate made possible (laughs) by our constant engagement with each other over social media and with you know whatever i just think there's so many more channels to reference your taste from instead of like cosmopolitan magazine and billboard top 10 whatever yes so like so now it's like everybody just wear whatever the hell but i i was so terrified i was like oh my god this is the first time in my life where i felt like the way i dress lets people know that i'm older than them (laughs) who is still wearing skinny jeans like i'm still out here looking like i'm going to the mall in 2010 everybody is wearing like big comfortable pants and i'm still trying to squeeze my my massive quads into like jeggings (laughs) and then and then you get the holes in the thighs in the same place every time and you're like cool 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 straight up yep yep um that's really funny and i i love what you said about like we have this like really interesting accelerated culture now. And I'm very curious to see what happens after kind of after this time where in a way we've all been trapped on the internet is how I'd put it. Yes. (laughs) We've been literally like not, I mean, I don't know if trapped. So I used to be way more extreme of a Luddite. I, you know, I like had um, like this off-brand phone that like barely worked and was like, I'm never getting an iPhone. Everybody's trying to control me. I hate, <laughs> I hate the internet. And um, of course, as I like grew as a person, I tried to learn how to be more moderate and use resources for the good they can provide um but like this year has forced me to be way more present on 
not just social media, but like my phone. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh -huh. I was talking, which is, I guess, is sort of interesting to me about it is that it has disembodied so many of my relationships. Mm. And I think that's why it's hard. Like, I'm a person who's so bad at texting. I am so bad at texting because I'm like, it is, I don't know. I So, like, this is a theory based on nothing, just like my <laughs> own thoughts. So, get ready for some amateur um, supposition. But, like, I love this. So, I mean, like, the i don't know when i was a child it would be unimaginable to me for everybody to have like cell phones were something that adults had and i would just like go outside like this is very boomer like in my day but, like, <laughs> i rem i remember a time i literally remember a time where if i wanted to see my friends i just walked to their house and mm -hmm. saw if they were home and then if I told somebody like, hey, meet me at the Quick Mart at five, there was no way for me to text them in between and be like, hey, are you coming? Like, are you still here? It's right. just like you, you have to trust that that person is going to meet you. And I think what has happened is that like in much of the same, first of all, I think it's impossible for human beings' minds to adapt like over a single generation to yes. that much input like i think that that is just pushing our capability way beyond what we're mentally able to tolerate and make sense of like yes um but two it's like this diminishing return of meaningful communication because mm -hmm. when you have the option to communicate with anybody at virtually any time, then it's like you also have this reverse obligation. Of and so now friends that I would have seen maybe when I went through their town on tour or something or that mm -hmm. I would have had to like call maybe like once or twice a year and be like, hey, man, I haven't talked to you. Like I can theoretically engage with those people at any time. And mm -hmm. so, but it's like since it's so disembodied, the connections are so much smaller and they give you so much less fulfillment. And then people are like constantly texting each other it's like the diet soda of interaction <laughs> but it's like but it's like the more that you interact the more validation is required for a friend yes like and yes. i honestly straight up don't think that our human brains can give focused attention and presence to people on the scale that we are expected to you know what i mean yeah. And you spoke to uh, real quick, I'm going to do a daring maneuver and see what's up with my Wi-Fi because part of you blessed when you said that. And I was like, the irony of there being a glitching sound while we're oh talking about the God. overload of the human mind with digital communication. I'm like, damn, well, that's on point. Okay, <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Let's see what's going on here. Oh, it's because my computer connected to the 5G network after restarting Zoom spontaneously. Uh, <laughs> sure, I see. The, the 5G. The 5G. It's after us. It's, it's probably because I'm vaccinated. Uh <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, you have nanobots in your blood. They're communicating with my nanobots because I just got my first dose recently. Heck and uh, heck. It might although, dude, here's my thing with conspiracy theorists is like, do you know what's really I, funny? I, so my internet literally 
said your connection is unstable and then i heard you say so my thing about conspiracy theorists and then it froze until the phrase <laughs> the wrong way <laughs> no I, what I was gonna say, okay that is very interesting but i was gonna say basically i don't want to leave the conspiracy theory thing open to misinterpretation because i don't want people to think that i'm like an an anti-vaxxer or something crazy nope. but it's like you i i just like i feel actual sadness for people who are willing to believe that there's something really malicious and evil and um dangerous about like power structures and corporations but then don't identify oh yeah like we're try actively trying to make your brain obsessed with gmail so that we can sell your data and make you engage with our application or with our website more and more and more because it is lucrative for us. They're just like, yeah. there's nanobots <laughs> in the vaccine. And I'm like, man, you are willing to believe that corporations and power structures go to great lengths to manipulate citizens and consumers, but in such the wrong direction. I'm like, yeah. so then how much of a, if you believe that they would do that, how much of a stretch is it for you to believe that like, Racism benefits American politicians. Like, I don't know. Right. It's, you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, it's very Occam's razor where you're like, you're on the right track. It's just that the answer is like the simplest a lot one. Yes. Occam's razor is exactly it. Um, where you're like, I see where you were going. And then you veered onto this really interesting path. But like, you could have stopped at the first stop. Like, that was it. You got it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know. Like, never mind the fact that we're like fomenting other countries with like arms deals because of our oil interests. Right. America right. is actually doing weather warfare with chemtrails. And I was just, oh no, it's so, you were so close. <laughs> That's, yeah. And it's very much, I think what you were speaking to about like, for instance, like how much our brains can actually handle and how much we can emotionally handle, like genuinely connecting with that many people. It's almost like we want there to be meaning. Like we want meaning in our connections. We want meaning in the world around us. And so sometimes if our brains are like, but is that the only meaning and we want more? Like there are some people that are like, but there has to be more, there has to be more. And it's like, what's more? <gasps> Nanobots in your bloodstream. <laughs> No, I mean, oh gosh, yeah, but I mean, meaning making is the task of humanity, in a sense, um, and it's scary, yeah, I think it's, wow, never mind, I, I, I was about to, like, jump off into, like, <laughs> a very existential uh, tangent, but I will stop it, I will stop that it. That's hilarious. My brain is like, existential tangent? That's what we're here for. That's my bio. <laughs> existential tangent. Oh my god. Yeah, when I originally started this podcast, it was like, oh, I want to talk to people who do multiple things that they're passionate about. And then the world like low key just inverted itself. And I'm like, I want to talk to people about literally whatever they want to talk about. <laughs> That's awesome. I really enjoy conversations like that, too, because then it's like, I don't know, it flows in a more natural way. It doesn't feel like me providing, like, canned answers, I guess. 
Yeah, because it's it's especially weird if someone comes in with like a preconception of you. Like I've had that on the other side of either being interviewed or speaking to someone where someone is already like, oh, well, I want to ask you about X, Y, Z. And you're like, well, I guess I could talk about that, but shrug. (laughs) (laughs) And it's always interesting because it's like I do feel a responsibility to answer the questions that I get asked most often about my art thoughtfully because that is part of what my job entails yes not only the the making of the music but also the ongoing commentary around it yeah Um, but like yeah sometimes I I'm getting better at it though I'm getting better at answering questions honestly instead of trying to find like a way to placate or like a neat tidy way to reconcile something we're talking about i feel like i used to get asked uncomfortable questions and i would give like greeting card answers because (laughs) i confrontation makes me really uncomfortable (laughs) Um, or not even just yeah i guess confrontation like i would never I just wouldn't be a person who disagrees with like an interviewer or even like a person I'm having a conversation with. I feel like my um, my cop out is always like that may be true, but and then try to like (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm just such a like a toxically accommodating person. So I'm working on not being that. It's hard, especially if you're used to accommodating people. Like if you're used to yes ending, when you say no to someone, you're like, did I do it right? Yeah. (laughs) That has a ton to do with like, I don't know. It it does have a lot to do, I think, more than I would have been credit to or recognized myself because I felt like, to say that it had to do with how was I how I was socialized as a woman that mm-hmm. I was more accommodating that I was non-confrontational um I I'm sure that there's other things about like my childhood experience and my parents that make me like that but also it does very much have to do with um being a female body in this world and like how I'm regarded by others and I didn't want to say that like I never I think I never wanted to acknowledge that about myself because it felt like a weakness that I would not be able to see how I had been socialized by a patriarchal patriarchal structure Mm -hmm. and then override that like once I can recognize it but there's so many things you know I'm learning all the time that it's not always so easy to just logically accept something and then put it into practice there's so many mental hurdles to overcome with everything yes and especially when you're still within that structure that like we internalize it in a way that we went along with a structure we were raised in that that's a weakness but it's like wait that structure still exists even once I've realized it you're like hold up that means that now I realized it and I'm like swimming kind of against the stream do things swim against streams i don't know how things swim um (laughs) swim against streams i think that's the whole thing like sam that's like how bear like grizzly bears catch salmon because they're swimming Uh upstream Uh uh-huh isn't that the whole here we go you know i it's so funny i'm like i'm from la i don't know how things swim i swim (laughs) (laughs) 
plenty of things swim upstream. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it's like once <laughs> it's like once you realize that, then you have to keep reinforcing like a narrative that goes against like the dominant narrative, which that takes so much effort. <laughs> it takes so much effort and it's something too that also like if you have something specific that you wanted to talk about i don't want to like get to the end of an hour and you'd be like i didn't cover anything so you can like cut me <laughs> off at any time but like i think i've been thinking about is uh the same thing is true of me under recognizing how much a male dominated society had affected me and how much i Mm-hmm. or how comfortable I feel in the world like the same thing is true of my identity as a queer person and I find myself mm-hmm. in a lot of interviews now going back when I'm asked specifically about like queer musicians or just queer people that I looked up to as a child or um, mm-hmm. f- female musicians non-cis male musicians I am recognizing this pattern of assimilation that I didn't want to acknowledge like but when a with an identity there's no right way to execute it b no one hands you a a handbook on being queer right when you recognize that you have a crush on a girl in your class no one is like here you need to read all these books and so then i i feel like that's like that is the really uh insidious part of um and damaging uh thing about heteronormative society is that like in addition to um trans lives and like specifically black trans lives being uh disproportionately more at risk than Mm -hmm. like whatever straight passing cis people walking around um and the actual physical violence that is incurred uh upon queer people there is also like um like um I don't kind of is like or like maybe a a self reinforcing internalized homophobia that makes people engage with their queerness in a really unhealthy or heteronormative way like I was social until I got to college and made friends with a bunch of other lesbians i was just a person who like hung out with dudes Mm -hmm. said like said queer slurs in my regular language but without like now when i say something is queer it's like from a position of pride and like solidarity but like Mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's like i i have to actually be accountable to those um things that i did out of ignorance sure but also because queerness was innately like oppositional to mm-hmm. normative society and to the power structures that existed around me of just like hetero life in high school in Tennessee. Yeah. So I, it's like I, I can see in my own life how I chose to assimilate so much more often as a self-preservation method so much more often than I chose to retaliate or like rebel and Mm. i don't know um yeah i wish that there had been more channels or examples of people radically asserting their queerness or um their 
themselves as a, a, a woman or a female. Um, yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah, I guess that's the work. The work is acknowledging the resources you didn't have and the mistakes that they allowed you to make because mm. of you being deprived of resources. Um, yes. Information yeah. and art and conversations like this one where mm. people can also hear that you are taking accountability for being like, hey, instead of like doubling down and feeling ashamed, it's more like, hey, I didn't have the resources. I have them now. Yeah. I'm learning a lot. I've learned a lot. Oh my gosh, how do I share with other people? Like, because that's exactly like, that's so interesting that you said that you're like, yeah, no one hands you a guidebook. And it's like, of course they don't because they're, they're all like covert guides. Yeah. It's almost like once you figure out like, oh wait, I'm queer. It's like you, you all of a sudden look back and you're like, oh my God, all these little unrelated seeming moments in my past, they seem to, oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's like without, again, like without, hmm, I, I even find this in my earlier music that especially the love songs that I would write, or more often the like heartbreak songs I would write, mm -hmm. are very much the, like a queer experience, um, like re-situated into like a straight dynamic because mm -hmm. I feel like that was so again it's like I still had a very binary understanding of gender and gender roles within a relationship because that's just how I was raised and mm -hmm. once I came out all my dude friends just treated me like a dude and so yep. I was basically just like enacting um really toxic uh like heterodynamics uh mm -hmm. with like these really screwed up uh, ideas of like what femininity means and what like like I think about this all the time but like it took me so long even to be like there doesn't have to be a male female dynamic in queer relationships yes but like if that is all you're ever shown like of course when I'm 15 it's like I I feel like there are these very clearly defined slots that everybody has to fit into of like dominant or non-dominant or like mm -hmm. and femme and I don't know it's just like it is very much just taking what you see and like that's all the information you have yeah um, and it's like and that's it's so important to have other things in our culture so that people can be like oh wait there's other ways to be yeah like, <laughs> <laughs> there's other ways to be yeah seriously <laughs> All I knew about relationships was like I used to watch Comedy Central. <laughs> no, this is great. I used to come home from school and I would just watch like the two-hour block of the thirty-minute Comedy Central presents stand-up. Oh my god! I, was like, I didn't. I didn't know what else to watch. I'm just out here getting home from school. That's amazing. Making some chips, watching Comedy Central, and so basically, my context for adult relationships was exclusively, and also it was like male comedians being like aren't women annoying? Don't you hate going shopping and waiting with them and how they never can make decisions? And then women comedians or female com comedians being like, is it annoying how men are completely emotionally available and really <laughs> uh, dirty and basically adult children that you have to clean up after all the time? Oh, well, I guess that is the male-female dynamic. And so it's like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's like, that is what was presented to me. And it makes me so happy now 
even though I try not to get like overexcited about progress in a way that di uh, ignores or diminishes awareness of how much work there still is to do, but especially when I see like my younger cousins and stuff or like younger people in my life, the way that they talk about relationship dynamics and about like helping with unhealthy and uh, even the portrays um, queerness and yeah. um, sexual agency and the importance of consent. I'm just like, wow, this is, this is actually so much different than what I was being given as a child. And that makes me yes. Um, I think it is also very possible to recognize the progress that has been made and recognize that there is still progress to make. But it's kind of like, celebrate without resting on your laurels. <laughs> sure, <laughs> We're like, totally. this is so exciting. Okay, let's do more. But like, let's validate that this is really exciting. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I think that's what keeps people from becoming burnt out. I There's this book, Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Oh, Rebecca Solnit. Solnit. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I have gotten so much comfort from that book, especially when she talks about like the incremental victories within like an ongoing um, discourse. Because mm -hmm. I also just, I, was, I, I can't stop talking about this book. I'm so sorry. It's, I just read the Kennedy. I love right? this book. Keep talking. Viet, uh, no, no, no. I, uh, not uh, Hope in the Dark, but The Committed by Viet Thanh Nguyen. Ooh, um, I, I haven't just, read that. Dude, it's crazy. It's <gasps> a sequel to his earlier novel, The Sympathizer. And he basically just like talks about, I, it's, it's very like heady at times and there's a lot of like deep political and existential ideology uh, in there and like references to like Althusser and Sartre and like all, yes. all this stuff. But it is also very, his like it's historically research, like impeccably historically researched and accurate. And, um, but he basically talks about this endless dialectic, like the mom of uh, thesis and antithesis uh, producing like a constant new synthesis mm -hmm. and so it's like man that, that's just that's just the thought tree like the never-ending circle that you have to submit yourself to as a human being is like once you have a synthesis then somebody will have an antithesis to your synthesis, <laughs> synthesis. it's just like I don't know, letting go in that way makes me a lot more able to, it makes me uh, view this earth more hopefully, instead yes. of just being like, we'll never find the answer, how stupid is it to even try, it's just like, just, just do it one thing at a time. Just you find it. an answer, and, and then there's another question, yeah. and then you find another answer, and then you're like, oh, hold up, there's another question. <laughs> is this all of my life? Yes. Yes. It is. Yes. <laughs> that, exactly that. And when you're talking about the, you know, the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, it harkened back to what you were saying about how now our cycles of not just communication, but creation are accelerated because we get to bounce these ideas off of each other currently virtually. But even, I mean, I do think that we'll have like a renaissance of the world 2.0, um, sure. where people can share these ideas more physically. But 
It's so fascinating to me to see what has been emerging, at least musically, where people are like, what genre are you? And it's like, oh, like I make music and that people aren't attached to like <laughs> the identity of a genre anymore where it used to be. I was like, this is also going to sound very boomer, um, but it used to be more like, oh, well, like your favorite bands would dictate like what kind of clothes you might wear or who you might hang out with or different things like that, where now there's like fluidity across genres of music and across style and things like that where you're no longer defined by being like this is the one thing that I like and therefore I must be Straight in the plane. No I was like that I mean I was like that as a little middle schooler I found out that there was screaming music and then very quickly it was like this uh, I don't want to say downward slope but I just like plunged really heavily into only listening to like winds of plague and rose funeral because i really needed to let everybody know that i was like a metal kid uh -huh. only black and stuff and i do i remember it and it seems now almost obsolete for me to tell stories about being like a punk kid and not a band kid or a preppy kid or an athletic kid um but like that is very much real like i feel like those um and of course there's like uh subtle attachments of all those things to like class um yeah. but you're right like i find that the musical terrain is a lot less cordoned off from each yeah. other now yeah um, and i like that i really do appreciate that um because man i just think about i had to take so much music history when i was doing um when i was trying to do an audio degree and it was just talking about how like as well i don't know i was gonna say it feels like there are less maybe not less gatekeepers but more channels through which bands and musicians can make their music available to mm -hmm. the world by bypassing say a major label like mm -hmm. anybody can just put their stuff up on Bandcamp or soundcloud or whatever and like you can have these huge viral phenomenons that are not going through the regular gatekeeping channels or whatever yes but i guess yeah. that does still exist because it's like I don't know. All the streaming services have like curated playlists and stuff, and that it's like its own payola in a way. But, um, wow, sorry. I'm not here to <laughs> shit, like, shit on everything. Um, I love that uh, it's so funny you keep being like, wait, I'm talking about interesting stuff, and I'm like, go on. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I also, it's so funny. The only reason I have my camera off, by the way, is I'm in the middle of West Hollywood where like, even though I upgraded my internet, everyone's still on the internet because uh, I'll just stay inside, question mark. Sure. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how it is here too. Half of the inhabitants or people that come to visit Nashville don't care a ton. Oh, so, I mean, at least it's not like I have uh, Matt who plays drums with me, uh, Matt Gilliam lives in Texas and the governor like lifted the mask mandate. Oh my God. To businesses. Yeah. I can't even imagine. I swear there must be like someone in Texas must have it out for someone else because Texas is like, how do we just like go on a low key, every man for themselves rampage between like everything that went on with no power 
because they never upgraded their power grid to like, let's just not protect people from an established pandemic that's been going on for a year. I'm like, did is there someone that someone else just needs to get revenge on and like everyone else is suffering the consequences of that? Like what 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 happened there? Hot take, everyone is suffering the consequences of a weaponized puritanical religious belief in this like ugly cousin of social darwinism that is that every that like you actually aren't responsible for your neighbor and that yeah yeah um like i i hate it so much because it's like creepy social darwinism taken to its furthest end of being able to like logically detach yourself from someone's suffering that is like the basis of american bootstrap mentality belief and yeah. it's so toxic and it's honestly like i don't know it it just it's one of the most frustrating things that i talk to people about is when I, they're like I don't think we should have public welfare. And I'm like, okay, I can't wait to hear why not. I can't <laughs> wait to hear why, why you think that people don't deserve access to resources. Yep. That's okay. Yep. <laughs> like, but it's, and I know it's like, oh my gosh, there's just, even now as I'm sitting here criticizing that mindset, it's like, I try to like take a deep breath and understand that that person probably has gone through so many mental acrobatics to like justify this to themselves and are like deeply disillusioned as am i you know like i'm not the be all end all of community understanding but like yeah at least you're going (laughs) at least you're you're going through the thesis synthesis you yeah you're doing the dialectic at least you're at least you're on the road (laughs) i'm doing it we love the dialectic. Yes. We love the dialectic here. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna do <laughs> some practice next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm super fun at parties. Oh yeah. Well, this is me. <laughs> I've been deeply relieved that I'm like parties. We don't have to go to those anymore. No longer do I converse with people's mm. dogs in the corner. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Getting a dog was the bet for the time that I had the dog when it was not quarantine. Um, being a dog parent is great because at any time in the conversation that I don't have anything to say or offer, I can just redirect attention to the dog. Thank you. People are stoked about it. They're just like, yeah. Uh, well, anyway, uh, look, Beans, she's doing something cute. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's time to not look at me anymore. Um, and she, she's not, she doesn't have like self doubt (laughs) she's just a dog so she's there yep that's that's literally my entire social strategy is like are there animals around preferably dogs (laughs) (laughs) yes no you said something that i found remarkable which is that in a lot of ways our culture is one that encourages us to be blind to other people's suffering and I think that the reason why that stood out to me is like, for instance, the reason why I'm still, for the most part, staying home, like I go hiking with a mask on, like one does. Um, But other than that, I pretty much stay here because even though I'm 
vaccinated. I want everyone else to be vaccinated too. I want everyone else to have the same resource. And so I'm not going to either A, put other people at risk or B, demonstrate behaviors that if someone didn't know I was vaccinated, they would think was like, okay, but might put them or others at risk. And so it's like, okay, well, until like we all get to enjoy like this, this nice life, um, you know, I'd rather do things that would help protect others and hopefully give them the same level of safety that I have sooner. Um, yeah, completely. And it's like, man, it's been such a wild time to see masks and like, literally because you know i use the example of public welfare but like that discussion has been going on for decades yeah um centuries and but at this time in our life it's like so on the surface yes how easy it is for people to relieve themselves of the responsibility for their neighbor yes um, it's, it's become weird. such a marker of it like when i see someone just meandering around without one like it immediately to me signals like, cool, you don't care about other people very much. And that, all right, I'm not going to like yell at you. I'm not going to get mad about it, but that, that tells me where you're at. True. And I know I've, I've been thinking about this too, because there is so much, especially at the beginning when we started to see the political fragmentation that yeah. um, mask versus uh, no mask, this is a free country people. Yeah. Um, could create like I also when I see someone without a mask I think it's hard for me to fully and this of course is different for someone who has had maybe like a loved one or a family member die from COVID but it's difficult for me to condemn them as an individual although sure we're all masters of our own destiny. Free will is a thing. There's so many other factors in a person's life that determine like where they're getting their information from and who yeah. they trust. I was listening to this um, podcast about people who were obsessed with QAnon and they had this psychologist oh, yeah. come on to explain how basically QAnon uses the same uh mind tricks as like a religious cult yes by be by trying to uh destroy your faith in literally any other information source um turn people who disagree with you into the enemy and basically then use their information right or not to control you yes um and so i'm like man as much as I have, like, this self-righteous fury towards people who are not in the world behaving considerately of others the way I feel they should, I also really feel like I don't want to be, like, I don't want people to, again, non-confrontational, so I, I'm like, yep. I don't want people to hate me for saying this, but I, it's hard for me to hold an individual accountable before I hold the power structure that enabled them to be that way accountable before yeah. I hold accountable like all of the 
news outlets and politicians and people who own apps like Parler or whatever, like people who enable and encourage and perpetuate this kind of illusion those are the people that I want to hold accountable because I feel like on an individual basis if you just come out at that person like why aren't you wearing a mask then you're just going to get one of those people on the mask rage YouTube videos yeah. that, that has just been waiting for you to uh, criticize them or oh, of course. try to take a moral high ground and then it's like you're there's no there's no effective changing of that person's mind. There's no convincing that person to wear a mask. Well, and um, a lot of it goes back to, well, part of it that sparked in my mind was like just that empathy and also ability to take another person's perspective by seeing where are they getting their information? What are they emotionally attached to and why? And then like you were talking about of even when you said like, we didn't have a manual for being queer, which is true. No one gives us one. Um, It'd be really nice if someone wrote one. It'd be cool. Uh, but like, it's almost like, <laughs> since you don't have that, you only have the information that you're given up to a certain point. And then sometimes you have to seek out information because it is there. It's just sometimes more esoteric. Um, but it's almost like you want to hold the people accountable who are either disseminating this information to further their own power or kind of investigate the structures at play that would make it advantageous for someone to disseminate this information or someone to want to gain the kind of power that one would have if one's running a cult like QAnon instead of being like, oh, I'm going to get mad at like one of the people who believe this because you're right. Like if you get mad at someone for their beliefs, really anything, if you like, if you just get mad at someone for believing something that that will 0% <laughs> lead to a conversation I know, it's in, like, in I which either person is comfortable. <laughs> I have tried it for years with my family. I remember being like, I was like a freshman in college and I was like, mom, we, <laughs> the, everything about the United States is racist and we do it on purpose. And, you know, basically we, we were having the same conversation about um, public welfare. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it is easy to, so it makes me so mad, but it's also so hard to unwork just like decades and decades of how people that my generation would call boomers have been manipulated into thinking that, I don't know, people immigrating to the United States from uh, refugees, either refugees from countries or just immigrants to the United States are actually actively threatening Right. their livelihood that seems like such an obvious lie but it is something that political structures since like the dawn of time yes used to oppress and exclude people yes and it's really sad because it's like i don't know i just uh, it you know sometimes I, I was i was gonna just like kind of trail off there and like supply some sort of It'll get better eventually, but I think also sometimes it's good to just make space and mourn and regret the collective lostness, you know? Um, yeah, when we're stuck in these cycles, that you know, it's interesting that you cited kind of that perpetual cycle of, like, outsiderness and xenophobia that, like, we see that throughout the cycles of human history. Like, it's not novel to... 
mm-hmm. our era of human history. And it's like, oh, we still haven't gotten through that one and are wrestling with it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I um and it becomes more insidious too. Like I recognize I keep using that word, but it's because I very much agree with that. I think it's in like season three of The Good Place where they talk to the judge about changing the rules of getting into the good place because it's like impossible to be a good human being. Mm-hmm. They went back and reevaluated like, oh yeah, when it was like people were living in villages, you just pretty much like grew your food and didn't steal and didn't murder anybody. And now it's like, I bought a Pepsi and a tank of gas. Looks like I contributed to worker abuse and benefited from a really messed up uh, ongoing war machine to get this oil in my car. So yep. <laughs> You're like, bad place for you. <laughs> yes, bad place for It's like, man, everything, because it is so much more convoluted, is so easy to like remove ourselves from. Yes. And I used to think, like, I used to actually have so much crippling guilt about, like, I don't know, buying a single-use single, single use plastic water bottle. Yep. And it, it is kind of that both-and thing. Like, you can recognize what systems your daily activities are attached to, but if you, like I have done many times, um, allow it to paralyze you in this sort of defeated nihilism then you also relinquish your chance to do anything about it I guess yes and taking it piece by piece because otherwise you will be paralyzed by it it reminds me of uh it's a book on writing actually but I ended up reading it in grad school uh for therapy which I found really interesting I really like this choice of book it was uh the book bird by bird um it's uh yeah i need to write down the other book that you mentioned because you said the words of it that fascinated me and my brain was like remember the title and because i focused on remembering the title i forgot the title but remembered that i thought really hard about remembering it it's called the committed the committed Uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna google that right now do it i'm going to look up bird by bird the committed oh there it goes there we are um the reason why it reminded me of that is that the whole thesis of that book really is like you take things piece by piece because if you need to like somehow catalog every bird in the world you're gonna go yeah no Uh, (laughs) but if it's like you go bird by bird like you make progress because there's always room there's always room for more um but same thing as like we were talking about before where it's like recognize the progress that's being made while still knowing that there's more progress like you can then make like one choice differently and then be like okay I've adapted to that make another choice differently and like okay adapt to that where like because even in the midst of you know I don't know how to put it other than trying to be a decent human in the world (laughs) like I'm really trying my best and so, and sometimes I mess up. Um, and it's like at each opportunity be like, okay, what can I do differently next time? And also like, what did I learn from that? Because people, no matter what you do, like someone will find a way to criticize you or you'll find a way to criticize yourself. Um, 
And so if anything, it's more about like recognizing that as an opportunity for growth and change. Be like, all right, there's another one of those as opposed to being like, oh, there's too much. I'll just (laughs) (laughs) collapse. (laughs) Yeah, Um, no, I, I agree with that very much. Trying to look at your mistakes as like, uh, an opportunity for more information gathering. Yes. Um, yeah. And it's been a weird time to even like to be creating anything. Like, I don't know what you've been creating or not creating this year. Like this past year has pretty much been me doing this podcast and making music in my living room. And I just released the first song in like a year. Whoa. That, yeah, it was a weird experience. Feel- you know, I felt this like really terrifying migraine the night before (laughs) and realized that it was actually just the release of like the trauma of part of like just a little 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 nugget not like the whole thing but like maybe a sizable rock of it was being released just by releasing a song that I was like hey I actually wrote this like kind of at the end of 2019 finished the beginning of 2020 we filmed the video in my living room on the first day of lockdown with my friends that I was like, wow. yeah. And so it was like this little time capsule. And I originally thought I'd feel really joyous releasing it. But as the year went on, I just held on to it because I was just like, it's not the right time for this. Yeah. Um, and it was like the one year anniversary of that. And by releasing that, I now feel like I'm almost allowed to share again. And it was the weirdest feeling where like, I was like, oh, I get to... I get to share the stuff I've been making just in my little music cave that for me, it was just because I wanted to make it. And I was like, ah, I'll figure out how to release all this stuff later. Uh, but it's like the thing I was releasing was this podcast. Mm. And so that was really right. interesting during this time of like isolation and during this time of like, well, what can I, like, it was almost like I was like, well, I'm safe, but what can I do that will help other people or connect with other people? Sure. And so, yeah, that was kind of what informed that choice of, I was just like, have I, selfish is the wrong word, but like, have I been focused only on my own interests? Man, I think about that so much. I mean, cause it's like my job is, and also, um, I am so sorry, but I am afraid I will have to go soon. You're Um, okay. But I, what I wanted to say you was that's been a constant struggle of my own like with releasing music i mean when turn out the lights came out it was right after trump had been elected to office the first time and (laughs) i like i felt so stupid releasing a completely autobiographical hyper-focused body of work at a time when all of the there was a magnifying lens on all of the inequalities and um, injustices of the world. And I felt like that releasing this record too. But what I've, I I think there is a form of ego death that helps you understand that not everything you do for yourself is selfish, right? So like you're saying, I made this song because I, I needed to make it because I like making songs. That's why I made all the songs on these records. And it's like for once, when I 
kind of took away the narcissistic self-imposed responsibility of being a spokesperson for queer people everywhere and like using right. all the power that my music platform provides me when i took that away and recognized that i am indeed just a tiny point of data contributing to this massive discourse going on all the time um then i can see my music as worthy to release just because it is valuable as a single person's experience and that's really mm -hmm. all that I can give to the world like I don't really want to say I'm right about this thing and I'm gonna tell you about it or like my <laughs> spiel. I think and I hope that you feel the same way in reframing I don't know art or discussions that take place about the self not as selfish, but as a necessary part of the process of understanding others better. Mm -hmm. like, um, I don't know. Or at least that's what I try to tell myself when I think that I don't have a real job. Because I write <laughs> songs all day. Well, and it goes back to what you said about, like, looking at who you ended up looking to as like a kid and then in middle school and like things like that like we do look to artists and we look to artists to understand ourselves and other people and so in a way it's one data point but it's also a very important data point because like yeah it's in the context of a grand discourse but you're yeah. like we need all the data points <laughs> that we can get yeah the yes. higher, uh, it's statistically true that the higher sample pool you have the more representative the results of your analysis will be. That's very true. It becomes more statistically significant the better a simple random sample of the population you have. Wow, I love this. <laughs> this TED Talk that we have had. Um, but yeah, I, wow, I'm so glad that you went there with me. <laughs> I'm like, all just little data points. Exactly. I'm like, is it a nerdy topic? Is it gear? Is it statistics? Is it praxis? I'm here for it. <laughs> Also dogs. <laughs> also dogs. My dog is getting, yeah, I, um, I can hear my dog starting to get fussy right now. Yep. I heard the, I heard the head flap. I heard the ears, the flippy flippity. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So cute. She's like a hound. So she has those big, like, um, <gasps> floppy ears. Oh wait, maybe she'll come up here. Is yeah. I was like, <gasps> puppy dog. Oh, there she is. Oh, yeah. she's like, what, what, what is it me? You want to look at me? What's going on? <laughs> she just wants me to take her out. But... Yep. Yep. Oh my goodness. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Of course. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And thank you for having such an enjoyable conversation. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Why Not Both. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. You can also come hang out with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, both on Instagram and on Twitter. This season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print, music, and entertainment magazine and website. You can find them at www.undertheradarmag.com and feel free to support them on Patreon. Extra special thanks to our producer, Laura Studeris, who is literally a rock star. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you next episode. Thank you.